BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Hi, everybody. I'm Denise Hanitka, and you are listening to a brand new episode of On a Mother Level. My guest this week is a woman named Amy Liz Harrison. Her story is so important and timely because of where we're at in the world right now. It's been a hard year. And even without a hard year, there's this thing out there called mommy wine culture. I'm totally a victim of it, right? The rosé all day t-shirt, you know, making a lot of jokes about how much wine you drink just to deal with the hardships of motherhood. And it's been a long day. I'm drinking wine. I'm drinking all the wine today. Girl, me too. Amy Liz Harrison has an experience with alcohol that you're going to want to hear. And you know, I don't even know if it's necessarily about alcohol. I wonder if you could substitute any other problem that's going on in your life that's impacting the way you function, the way your marriage is functioning, and find some inspiration or some comfort in her story and how she has conquered um, a really difficult problem in her life and how she's rebuilt her marriage and her family. So I'm going to read to you from amylizharrison.com. She is the author of a new book out. It's called Eternally Expecting, A Mom of Eight Gives Birth to a Whole New Life, Her Own. She writes on her website, basically my book is a metaphor and a memoir, so I'm calling it a metawar because why not? It's my story, but interwoven are the parallels I discovered between becoming a mom and getting sober. Here's the nutshell Cliff Notes version. Mommy playdate drinking, coupled with the high-flying lifestyle of an airline executive's wife, led to my disintegration into the depths of alcoholism. By the time I had my first four kids, I was drinking around the clock and eventually hit a soul-crushing brokenness I had never known. Spoiler alert, I have a mugshot out there at the King County Jail. But, she writes, I managed to get sober. My husband stayed with me, and I've given birth to four more kids. That means eight in total, and I'm not even Mormon. No offense to Mormons, it's a joke because I'm often asked if I am one. This spring commemorates a decade of continuous sobriety for me. April, 10 years, she hit 10 years. And it seemed like the perfect time to share my journey, from essentially being the fire festival of motherhood to becoming a sober mom of eight. It's a wild ride, and I'm so honored to have you along for it. Wheels up, Amy Liz Harrison. Amy and I talked for about an hour, and I really enjoyed the way that she shared her story and the strength that she showed in being able to admit how bad things got. And how good things are getting now. But I think one important thing that she raises is that getting sober is not a finish line. She is continually evolving 
And I just loved hearing about the role that her husband played in her recovery. And that inspires me very much as well. So off and running, here we go with Amy Liz Harrison. Can I tell you about the mom morning that I'm having? I would love to hear it. Okay. So I have two little boys. They're four and two. They're both at daycare right now. And I walked into daycare to see some other parents holding quarts of ice cream. And I thought, gah, that email that came last week about how it was ice cream day and how we have to bring the toppings and they're going to have an ice cream party and every kid is going to have to share their favorite ice cream flavor. And my kids have no ice cream. So I had one of those, mom, what do you mean you don't have ice cream for us? I will. (laughs) I will be back. (laughs) I am bringing you the ice cream. And I will say all's well that ends well, because when I showed back up with the ice cream and the toppings, my four-year-old gave me the biggest hug and I was like, okay, oh, okay. That was worth it. That was completely worth it. Okay. I have done that so many times, Denise, (laughs) and I'm here to tell you that I'm pretty sure at my kid's school, there's like a wanted poster in the office that's like, she's going to let you down or like flake or something is pasted over the top of it. I mean, it's happened so many times or I'll be like, Oh, I didn't know about it. And the teacher is always like, it was in the newsletter. And I'm like, I'm sure it was free. It's me, not you. It's all. Yeah, it absolutely. It's definitely me. It's <laughs> a thousand percent me. So typically, where do you like to start with your story? Because it's, you know, it's involved. I don't know. Do you want to start with the book? Do you want to start with, with how you are doing today? It's nice as Um, a mom to be asked, how are you today? How are you? You know, when you finally have that moment, it's like, how are you? Yes. And it's such a great question too, because sometimes I'll sit there like stunned. I don't know, you know, and I'll have to kind of really stop and think about it because I think as moms, that's what we do. We're naturally organically thinking about others. And it's just hard. It's hard to remember that we're people too. And, you know, we have feelings and emotions and all kinds of stuff going on in our minds. And yes, so I am fabulous actually today. Really good. Thank you for asking. Let's see, I celebrated 10 years of sobriety in April. That's huge. And um, yeah, it's been huge. And I have found uh, that my biggest concern is I don't want to paint some crazy picture like things were bad and I got sober and now everything is perfect. That is so not my message. And the big deal for me is I now have tools that work pretty well for me in most circumstances to deal with life on life's terms. Uh, but, but life is relentless. You know, it just keeps coming at us and keeps throwing us curveballs. And so being unprepared for all of those things that happen, it's just, it is what it is. And I get in, you know, arguments with my husband and I yell at my kids and all of that. So I just want to, um, I just want to show that I'm a normal person. Um, despite the story. And so, because it goes from bad to obviously very, very positive. And I think 
the big connection also that I want to and make, and I love that this is a podcast. So, you know, people aren't going to see my appearance necessarily, but it kind of, I have the ability now that I'm not hung over in the mornings to get up and take a shower and do my hair. Not all mornings, but some mornings I do. And that was not me. I mean, 10 and a half years ago, I was wandering around in my neighborhood in a bathrobe at six o'clock at night, thinking it was six o'clock in the morning. And so I just want to make it clear that I may sound like everything's hunky dory to an extent. I don't know why I said that, that phrase, but you must but watch Real Housewives. You know, really that was not me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that, was that on there? Kathy Hilton is one oh, of the okay. characters and she, she, somebody says, I'm not hunky dory. And she says, who is hunky dory? So I feel like everybody's oh. saying hunky dory now, all of a sudden it's like kind of re-entered the Got it. zeitgeist, you know? <laughs> Got it. Well, I mean, and I've watched that show, but I don't know. I'm old. I have a side part. I'm not up with all of the current things. So that's good to know. That is good to know. Um, <laughs> So, but, so you're uh, saying that sobriety so, is an evolving process and that it's not a finish yeah. line necessarily? Correct. You know, it's a cyclical thing. It's going to be continuous for me, God willing, uh, my whole life. And it's something that I love to do. I love to um, just be involved in the process of becoming a better contributor to society in general. And what can take me out of that is thoughts that, oh my gosh, you know, I can't control this situation, people, places, and things. And so as long as, for, I believe there are tons of different ways that you can get sober. For me, it happened to be through a 12-step fellowship, which I'll get into um, just how I stumbled upon that. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the big deal for me is just really expressing that it is what it is. Life's difficult. We learn from sometimes our pitfalls and that was the opportunity that I got to have. So I feel super blessed about that and lucky. And so when COVID hit <laughs> uh, April, 2020, and you know, we sort of all realized that we were going to be at home and that was actually a, strangely a, a bit of a gift for me. I had many, many times been told, oh, your story's so interesting. You should write a book. And I kept thinking with what time, you know, and I'm like, just sort of a disorganized person by nature, couldn't figure out where to start, blah, blah, blah. And with COVID, everything got turned upside down. And I had a little time because I wasn't shuffling kids around and driving the taxi all over the place to practices. And so it afforded me the opportunity to be able to sit down and write it and join some writers groups and all of that stuff. And so um, I wrote the book and it's called Eternally Expecting. A mom of eight gets sober, gives birth to a whole new life, her own. And so the background of that is that I noticed when I started to put the pieces together when I was making the outline for the book, that there were a lot of similarities between getting sober and giving birth. Chiefly, a lot of pain is involved <laughs> and it is a process. Um, you know, and, and, and the main difference that you just touched on a second ago is, you know, that giving birth is sort of this, this linear, it's got a defined beginning and end. 
whereas sobriety differs in that way. But so many other just similarities that blew my mind, including things like afterbirth, getting rid of the things that no longer serve me. Once I kind of got that nailed down, got kind of those nuts and bolts nailed down, the rest just came. And um, yeah, I was able to tell my story and um, that's been the, just a wonderful opportunity. So but when you're talking about yes, giving perfect. birth, you're you're pretty much an expert on that at this point. Have you given birth eight times? Yes, I okay. have eight births and same baby daddy. My husband stayed with me through the whole thing, which is crazy. I don't know why he did. I'm thankful, but I wouldn't have stayed with me. It's, so it's it's beautiful. It really is. Oh, it takes a lot of courage. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I think so. So and, eight, um, eight births, does one stand out over the other? Um, do you have one birth story that you like to tell out of those eight? The main one that stands out honestly is number one, because she rocked my world. I mean, a first going, going from a couple to a baby was, it just completely changed the entire person of who I was you know, changed our activities, blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, and she was born pretty quickly. She was born in four hours and, um, yeah. And I, I sort of couldn't believe it. I thought it was going to be this big process. And so from that point on, um, I, it just kind of came easy for me. So I have to find new hobbies now because that <laughs> chapter is done, <laughs> but but she's the one that really rocked our world and was kind of a difficult baby and kind of colicky uh, as well. And just emotionally, I was, you know, just so unprepared for everything and all of the physical changes and all of the mental and emotional stuff. So probably that she's the one that I always talk about that sort of, once I became a mother and got launched into that world, um, it was a little bit easier after her. I mean, that was the shock to the system. Okay. And at that time, how long had you and your husband been together? What was your dynamic together at that point? So we'd been uh, married about two and a half years and we had met and married pretty quickly within um, five weeks. We were engaged five months later, got married. And so we were kind of still navigating newlywed life at the same time, which was interesting and <laughs> challenging. Um, but we made it and, uh, you know, we've both got some battle scars to show from not literal scars, but, uh, you know, just learned a lot about communicating and compromising and working as a team. Part of the big deal for me was we had four kids by the time I started drinking heavily and, I really was beating myself up because in a sense, because I thought this is what I've always wanted. I have always dreamed of being a mom. You know, I had two boys, two girls close together. They were connected, you know, in age, they would play well together, all of that stuff. And, and I just thought, gosh, you know, why is it that I feel unfulfilled? And I just feel so overwhelmed and that, you know, I have all these friends who are also raising kids and have little ones, but I just, I felt like I really could not connect with other moms because I was afraid of saying, 
hey, I really don't think I'm good at this. I'm really terrified that I'm in charge of four little kids well-being all day long and and I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And it felt like all of my other friends, this is of course the illusion, which was not true, but I felt like all my other friends, they just had their stuff together. They just really had the manual to parenting. And I somehow didn't get my copy when I left the hospital. And so I started to feel pretty, pretty terrible inside about myself. And I had that real uh, self-hatred start to swirl and, and it was, it got to the point, it was pretty debilitating. And I found that when I drank, that began to take the edge off of that feeling a little bit and basically worked until it didn't. At first, you know, it was fun and we're playing games with the neighbors outside in the afternoons and doing all of that and parties and social things and events at my husband's job and all of that. And I felt pretty fancy, you know, felt like I was kind of, you know, glamorous. And then pretty soon I started to realize that during nap time, man, I was just beat from like the morning. And I just really wanted to feel that sense of ease and comfort that I felt when I drank. And so I'd start to have a glass of wine while my kids were napping. Over time, turned into two glasses of wine. And then over time, I'd have like half of a bottle, maybe three quarters of a bottle gone. And this is like by three in the afternoon, secretly inside. I didn't tell anybody, but secretly inside, I was pretty concerned about that because I found that I was telling myself I could stop, but I really didn't believe that was the case. When I didn't drink, I felt restless inside. I felt super irritable and I felt discontent. And I really did not have a handle on any kind of self-love for myself and patience and gentleness and kindness. I just was mad at myself all the time and thinking I was a failure. And then, so I would drink on top of that to cover that shame. Just a cycle. Yeah, just a cycle. Exactly. Yes. Stuck in that trap of just every day was Groundhog Day. Yeah. And it progressively got worse. And I realized I probably had an element of postpartum depression. I went and saw a psychiatrist, was not honest, did not tell him how much I was drinking. And basically convinced him, oh, I need Xanax. I'm so stressed. I'm, you know, anxiety ridden. Part of which was true because I was getting these alcohol induced panic attacks um, that I just, you know, I'd get in the shower and then I couldn't remember if I'd just taken a shower or not. Like it was getting pretty bad. So when you went to see, um, when you went to see the doctor about potential, um, postpartum depression, how old was your youngest at that point? You had four at that time. Mm -hmm. And how old was your youngest? Let me try and get this correct. So I don't mess it up, but she was, she had to be about four. Okay. So yeah. And So I went there and, you know, tried to blame everything on everybody else and, you know, all the terrible things in my life. And then I would drive home to my nice suburban house. And then I would feel guilty that 
I mean, it was just this swirling pit of, of just angst really. And just really feeling like, gosh, what is wrong with me? That was my big deal is that I had started out as a quote, normal drinker, unquote. And what I mean by that is I could go to a book club, have a glass of wine, not think about it while I was there, not have my entire evening revolve around drinking and how much was I going to be able to drink without people noticing and all of these thoughts that I kind of had later, you know, that was the big thing for me was, oh, well, certainly I can get back to drinking normally. And it was this constant chase to try and get there again. I'll just, I'm just going to have two before the parent teacher conference. Like, it's like all these things. I don't know why I was thinking things like that, but rationalizing yeah it makes sense we do it all day I mean we do it with food we do it with the run through the drive-through you know tomorrow I will you know tomorrow I'll finish that laundry we do that all day with ourselves yeah a hundred percent essentially I realized all right I think maybe this is obviously controlling me and I'm not controlling it and finally one Christmas my husband sat me down and just said you know I I love you and I don't want to see our family fall apart, but I think you need to go get some help for your depression. (laughs) That's what he sort of, he posed it as, you're going to get some time by yourself um, to unpack some of these issues that you're struggling with. And I, I wouldn't have gone if he hadn't had said, you know, that it was for me and this was a gift and he, he really went about it a great way in my opinion so he didn't so did he mention he trying, alcohol he no? had uh bothered me in my mind a lot about alcohol uh during the past probably 18 months before I went to treatment the okay. first time and I just thought I mean it, he it felt like he was my dad he was constantly you know dumping bottles out that he would find or he would monitor how much I was drinking and so you know, I would be irritated and mad at him. And then I drink over it. And so then of course I played this blame game, like, see, you're making me drink and not owning up to my own behavior. And so by that point in time, I mean, like the, the jig was sort of up. Like I knew that my life was not at a quality that was going to be sustainable by that point. I mean, I could barely get out of bed by the time I went off to treatment for the first time. And so I went there completely unwilling, did not want to admit that I couldn't control it. I truly thought I'm just going through a hard time. I can get it back together. Even though I really honestly could not picture my life without drinking and having that warm sense of just relief. I just didn't know how I was gonna do it. And so I was terrified. And really what it was, was I was afraid of failure. And that was, that was devastating for me to think about like, oh, geez, if I try to quit and it doesn't work out, just add this to the pile of constant mom failures, right? Like it's just this growing pile for the day. And so I just didn't really want to try. What I did instead was I listened to everybody else in treatment, talk about their problems, And then I parroted back what they said. Yeah, I came home. I was not done drinking, apparently. 
And that was it. I just completely picked up where I left off and got a DUI two weeks later. And at that point, that was when, I mean, it was, it was a public DUI on the main street of the entire town. And, and that was really when I spent a night in jail and thought I have to at least try, I have to try. And if I try and I fail, at least I've tried. And so I went back to treatment the next day and that's when I was willing. And I basically said, okay, so if you tell me to stand on my head naked and that will help me get sober, I'm gonna try that. And so just that little tiny acorn of willingness was really what I needed to start listening and being honest and really truly unpacking why it was that I was looking to escape the way I felt. And so we'd worked on that. You know, I had a counselor. Let me pause yep. for a second. Let's go back to um, being stopped for that DUI. What was mm-hmm. it about that that was the trigger for you? What made that mm-hmm. event different than your husband or someone you love or respect in your life saying, I see it? Why did it have to be a cop? Someone who didn't know you? You know, what was it about that? You know, Denise, that's such an important question. I'm so glad you asked that because really what it was, was that was the event, the public embarrassment, the fact that I could not believe that I had driven with my kids in the car drunk. Like even in that state, I could not believe what I had done. And so until I owned that and felt the pain and the shame of that, nothing else was going to get through the shell that I had created that was rock hard. And so that was really the deal for me was that, you know, and, and going back to our early con- earlier conversation about people supporting spouses who might be drinking a lot, you know, my husband did not, he didn't cause it he uh, couldn't control it as much as he wanted to. And he really couldn't be the one to change it. It had to come from me. And so I really had to hit my own personal rock bottom. And I'm not saying this is like a one size fits all t-shirt. I think everyone's different. This was my experience is that until I decided in my innermost soul, you know what, I'm an alcoholic. I cannot control my drinking. And so I'm going to have to try and get sober. Nothing, everything else just kind of fell on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I imagine you guys had to have had some, some pretty rowdy fights about this stuff, you know, where he's saying, you know, where he's finding bottles and he's catching and he's um, monitoring your behaviors and he's, you know, just watching you all the time. And I'm, and like, you're saying now you're getting mad because you're like, get off me, like, leave me alone. And Mm -hmm. I mean, at those times, was he like saying, I'm going to leave? What is he like, what is he saying? And you're just like, nah, like, I'm not, I'm not hearing any of that. Or you're not understanding me. Right. Or take me into some of those moments. Basically what we fell into a dance and it had some pretty seriously choreographed steps. And what would happen is I'd have some kind of a rough night out. And in the morning, I would get up and just 
pretend like everything was fine. I'd make a big breakfast and I just wouldn't even mention it. And then he'd come downstairs and he'd go, how are you feeling? And I'd say, I'm great. Oh my gosh, I'm fine. How are you? And I'd put on this fake face. And really what ended up happening for us was it would be this kind of distance, this like Grand Canyon that was starting to slowly grow between us. And after time, I mean, he would, there were a couple of times I really embarrassed him at work situations. And he would just tell me, I just don't know how much longer I can do this. I'm just not sure if this is going to get better or not. I can wait it out if it's going to get better. And so for me, from my end, I was just like, why on earth are you always on my back about this? It's not affecting you. I was fully convinced that in my head, which I know is, I mean, I know now <clears throat> is the complete opposite. It was completely affecting him and my kids. And so I think that I felt some threads of that. And I really just didn't, I couldn't put the pieces together. I didn't understand the disease of addiction. I didn't understand that of course I was going to be fighting this phenomenon of craving. Of course I was going to be fighting this mental obsession that I, that I had conjured up in my brain that was kind of telling me that I couldn't cope without it. And so because I wouldn't reach out and ask for help and get honest with anybody, with him or with my friends or a friend, or I just really was suffering in silence. And I had this big, thick wall of pride too, that, oh, it's like a diet. I can just turn this on and off. You know, I mean, I've lost weight after I've had these four babies. I know how to do it. So just get off my back is what I kind of kept doing to my husband. And yeah, we had some nasty, nasty fights. And, you know, I mean, it's weird because looking back, I know it was me, obviously, but it feels like I was a totally different person back then. And I guess that's because I have done work around it. But, oh, those were some dark days. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned it impacting your kids. How do you think it impacted them? How did you see it impacting them? The biggest story I can think of that I still feel a little bit bummed out about, even though I know they've forgiven me and I'm blessed. We have a great relationship, but a couple times, and this was something that I was just mortified by somebody else had to come and intercept them basically, because I couldn't care for them. So one time, for example, I showed up at church. Somebody had convinced me, you yeah, showed up at church, um, <laughs> totally, completely smashed and was supposed to have a meeting with somebody. And they took one look at me and they were like, did you drive here? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay. And they asked me a few more questions. And then somebody I didn't know came in and was like, I'm gonna go ahead and you know, go get your kids uh, or your somebody was at school. And then I'm gonna take them back to my place. And I'm just, first of all, I'm drunk at this point, but then I'm trying to figure out how am I going to explain this to my husband I don't even know who this person is. Now I'm going to go tell him he needs to pick up his kids from some person's house, some stranger's house. 
and I couldn't function because I was drunk. And so I couldn't think it through. And looking back, it's terrifying to think, gosh, you know, I mean, they were probably, I think my oldest was probably six and a half or so at the time. How scary would that have been for them? Yeah. Yeah. And so those are some of the things that looking back, I remember now, and I'm just bummed. I'm bummed that that happened to them. And half the time when I bring things up and I'm like, I want to make an amends to you. They're like, we don't even remember that. What? Like, but the truth is, is that I remember those things and how I felt at the time that they might've felt. Mm-hmm. And so I try not to cling too strongly to any of that because it does take the focus in my mind off of, it was kind of, it, I believe a necessary part to get me to where I am today. And the fact that I can make up, not make up for lost time, but kind of, because they've had the opportunity to see me recover out loud. And that's been huge for them, especially as teenagers now, um, because they can see what happens when somebody lets themselves just totally get completely out of control, as I did. And, you know, there were times they had friends over and I did you know, crazy things that were not appropriate, like walking down the stairs in my underwear, like not realizing, oh, this probably isn't the best idea. I should probably go get a robe. That would be appropriate. And just, just silly kind of not great things like being out in the cul-de-sac and taking pulls of vodka off of neighbors, you know, big old gray goose bottles that they're wandering around with. So that's the other thing is I sort of had lived, I lived in an environment that wasn't conducive to painting a picture that a sober life was going to be a great idea. So I just fell right into it. And I didn't, I, I didn't care because I had that whole sickness going on in my mind, um, that, and body. Mm -hmm. So let's go to that second time of being in treatment. Then after getting the DUI, Uh you go to the treatment and you say there was just enough of a nugget for you to now latch onto and start to process the information differently than you did the first time. Right. By that point, like, I mean, the chips had fallen where they may, right? I mean, I really, I had legal issues at that point. I did not know what was going to happen to me. I didn't know if I was going to be serving jail time. And I think really for me, I was that stubborn. (laughs) I needed I needed legal consequences. Otherwise, there was no no accountability for me. And I couldn't, I don't think I would have done it if there was no accountability. Whereas when I actually opened my mind and considered that perhaps, perhaps this is me, perhaps I am the alcoholic. Doesn't matter if I have a church background, doesn't matter if my, you know, parents gave me a great childhood none of that matters that this can be the new face of addiction right I always thought it was the bum under the bridge with the paper bag and so I think that's another reason I refuse to admit that I could be an alcoholic once I started to really let all of those uh, shields come down 
and really started to pick through some of the stuff from my past that I had like it was a really easy thing to do was just blame this and blame that person and whatever but to not realize that I had a choice in most of those things I had a choice even in my attitude and and you know just and when you're younger sometimes you don't have those tools and that's okay but moving forward you know when my perspective didn't shift and I didn't go get any professional help for any of that it's just sort of snowballed and I started drinking over that stuff so once I started unpacking all of that that felt pretty powerful and that's when I felt power come through my powerlessness that's the first step um in the in 12-step fellowships right is is admitting defeat, admitting complete defeat and powerlessness. So once I did that, strangely, it was like a paradox because what happened was I felt powerful moving forward because I thought, well, I've been sober now, like, you know, seven, eight days. Maybe this can work. I'm starting to feel a little less foggy. Maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel somewhere, even though I couldn't see it yet. You know, I had to sort through all of that legal stuff and that was no fun, but I'll tell you something great that my husband did during that time was he did not swoop in and rescue me. Usually what will happen in our marriage is we'll just sort of, um, oh, you're good at this. So you do that. And I'm good at this. So I'll do that. You know, we kind of have these roles that we play um, or assign, you know, either on purpose or not. We just kind of fell into some. And he was usually the person who took care of any of those kind of things, large financial things or just anything major that was going on that needed to really be adulted pretty well. <laughs> he was kind of the person in charge of that. And he, he did not swoop in and rescue me. He did find me an attorney but I had to take the whole thing from there. And it was the best thing he could have done. And as a sidebar, it also simultaneously helped me start to build some confidence back. And I thought, oh my gosh, look at this. I'm actually like handling this. I'm handling what I've done. And that felt amazingly good in a weird way. And as it turned out for my case, you know, I was really lucky. I didn't end up having to do more jail time than just that one night. Um, you know, it's not the case for everybody, but I really appreciated the fact that I was given a chance by the judge to, to say, okay, I'm sick. I would like an opportunity to try and get well. And you know what? I followed directions really was the big deal for me. I didn't try and create something that I didn't know anything about, which at that time was staying sober. And so I just threw myself into the 12-step fellowship, had to get the court card signed, all that good stuff. And it worked. And interestingly, after I think it's three years, was the first time I had to go back and face the judge again. I did what's called here in Washington state as a deferred prosecution. And so at that point came back and the judge was like, congratulations. We don't see very many people make it back here at the three-year mark. And that was like a lightning rod because by that point I was no longer, 
I mean, I wasn't craving alcohol anymore. All of that dissipated eventually over time during my first year. But now I was really actively involved in the 12-step fellowship. And it, they, there's a little bumper sticker saying, I, I came for my drinking, I stayed for my thinking. Because really for me, um, that was the big deal, was the way that I was looking at things. And the perceptions were totally off base. And so if I can go and talk about whatever crazy thing is going on in my life and how I'm looking at it crazily and need kind of somebody else's perspective on it, then, I, then I'm doing okay because I'm getting honest with where I'm at in my life at that moment. And so I really enjoyed it. I was really enjoying the 12-step fellowship and I am still super active in it today uh, because, you know, then you get to help other people and see the light come on in their eyes. I'm wondering, okay, so you did all this work on yourself and you got yourself to a better place. How are things going with your husband at this point then? Because that's a long road back too. Yeah, I think that the fact that he was able to watch me in real time recover, that was powerful for him. And he, you know, living under the same roof and seeing that as I transformed, this new person who I was becoming was pretty much the same in all situations, you know, that I wasn't just this complete jerk to him at home and then trying to be all nice and whatever to my 12-step buddies or other moms. And so he really got to see the changes take place and start to solidify. And we, we did, we went to counseling. We've been in counseling twice. So I was trying to think, make sure that that was accurate. And we went to counseling, but he was just very adamant that, you know, I, I don't think I poured into your life enough and, and as a mom supported you enough. And, and it was just kind of a, a beautiful process really. And I feel looking back now, even at this moment, I feel super blessed that he chose to stay. He didn't have to. And then we found ourselves pregnant with a surprise fifth baby. And so at that point, um, I was pretty terrified. So that's backing up a little bit because that was two years after I had um, gotten sober. And I just thought, I just don't know if I can do this and stay sober. This is how I got really wrapped around the axle in the first place was the stress of toddlers and babies and not feeling enough and all of this. And my sponsor, who I still work with today, same person, uh, she said, you know what? You get to do things differently. That was like an aha kind of Oprah moment for me because I had not considered that, you know what, maybe being a stay-at-home mom making jello jigglers isn't for me. Like, maybe that's okay. And the fact that I had already kind of done that opened a door for me to do things a little bit differently. And, and we had more resources financially by this point in time. Yeah. And so uh, we were able to get a nanny, which we did do. And it was just really nice because I felt like if there was something that I needed to do, go to a meeting, go have coffee with a friend, go get my hair done or all these things that 
are these quote luxuries that are actually just kind of normal mm-hmm. things that moms need to do too. Um, but I had the opportunity to do those things and it really kept me grounded and it really helped me see, oh, okay. So being a good mom doesn't mean that I'm in the house. Like I just had had all these weird false narratives going in my head. And so to change that dynamic and change the dance steps with my husband, I mean, all of those things started really turning me into a different person Um, And you're right, it was absolutely so much work. But I was really seeing the fruit of that work. And so it just made me want to keep going. That's what propelled you? Yes. Hmm. Yes. And to this day, that kind of is what propels me also is the fact that, you know, I get to have these relationships with my kids that are these beautiful, honest relationships where I can say to them, oh my gosh, you know what? I don't know why I said that. It must be because I'm feeling insecure or maybe I've got some fear going on with you right now as you're leaving for college, for example. And I'm afraid that you're never gonna wanna come home. And um, it's causing me to have some like, low level anxiety like these are things I don't know my mom did a great job my dad did but they my parents never said that stuff to me nor did I think they even realized that that might have been what it was but it's just kind of funny I think I'm kind of an overshare with them now but I love it it's been a beautiful gift No, I like that philosophy. I do think that there are benefits to telling kids to say your feelings out loud, because how many times are you mad? You act mad about one thing, but in actuality, you're mad about something completely different, you know? And it's like, when you start identifying, what am I actually feeling here? That is a super, super helpful thing, I think. What am I really yes. worried about? What am I really stressed about? Because it's not, it's not the dishes in the dishwasher. It's something else. It's what you're right. saying. I'm nervous about you not wanting to come home. You know, I think that's very cool. And I think that's, that's such a neat coping mechanism to share with your kids. Yeah, absolutely. And then just the, the other thing randomly that, that really helped me was even stopping to just go, okay, like, something's going on inside me. What could it be something as simple as, am I hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? So that's this acronym for HALT. And um, that's a huge one to this day. I'll use that, you know, just like what's going on here. Oh, you know what? I I haven't eaten anything today. And so just learning those practices also as self-care as moms you know, we're just really, it's it's tough. That stuff is tough for us as moms oftentimes. So tell me then about six, seven, and eight. You've done better with the fifth. You did, took some steps to help you be successful there. I'm guessing that's what gave you the confidence to keep growing your family. Yes. And also because I didn't really want the fifth to grow up alone. And I'd seen the close relationship that my older four were developing and had developed. And I thought she's going to be this little tag along at the end, which is fine. But I just thought I want her to have a sibling. 
So yes, was there, there was like five years between four and five? Uh, se- actually seven years. Seven years. Okay. That is a big yes. gap. It's a big gap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. Yep. And so, yeah. And then by the time I had six, we were like, well, we're already back in diapers. We're doing this whole thing again. And plus, I'm not going to lie, shoot, it was great having some babysitters and some help, you know, um, with the older ones. They were great about pitching in and volunteering to help, you know, babysit or whatever. And so that was, I, it was just a gift. It was such a gift. And so then, boom, we ended up with eight. And so we're done now, but it's really fun. They're very, very much a two sets of like those little nesting dolls, you know, they have the same pattern, which is weird. So girl, boy, boy, girl, and then girl, boy, boy, girl. Interesting. So, I don't know. I know weird, but it's an yeah. even split. That's so interesting. Four and four. Yeah. So strange. I don't even know. There's <laughs> <laughs> probably some statistics on that. Yeah. Is there some like deep psychology involved here where the second four were something of a do over, you know, where you felt like you were Hmm. reclaiming being a mom? I ask that because I struggled with my second. I only have two, um, but I struggled after my second. And um, I often think if, if I want a third or if I feel like a third would be a do-over would be my chance to reclaim that moment that I lost with my second. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What a, what a beautiful question to ask yourself so honestly. And so that's a raw question and I love it. I love it. And I can tell you, I haven't considered that at all. So I don't know, but what I have considered is I have thought, gosh, I wonder if I'm experiencing addiction transfer, you know, (laughs) like they say sometimes, you know, you quit one addiction and then, you know, am I addicted to getting pregnant and having babies? What's going on here? You know, or, um, you know, cause it could be anything, right. Be online shopping or sex or, or whatever it is. And so, um, I have had those thoughts and I'm like, gosh, I better maintain my mental health, you know, while I'm going through this, but that's the beauty of having, for me anyway, a really good sponsor and that, you know, somebody to ask me some tough questions about things and just kind of keep me in check. But um, I really, I, I'll have to think about that a little bit. That's really thought provoking. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'm certainly not like accusing you of anything, you know, but it just, just because of my own personal thoughts, I just wonder if it, it, if it gave you some peace or something or, you know, was healing in some way to like, you know, have the, like those successful moments back. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely felt successful moments and, you know, it's interesting. I am kind of, and this is just me thinking out loud, but I am kind of having this memory of like, gosh, it's really nice to have not left the baby and toddler phase on a like a sour note, if that yeah. makes any sense. Um, and that I, you know, had sort of an opportunity to kind of do it again and do it differently. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's interesting. I'm definitely going to think about that some more and meditate on that. Okay. So for the listeners, oldest is how old? She is just about 20. Okay. And youngest is now? Uh, almost four. 
Oh my gosh. So that is, a, that is a huge spread. That is really yep. cool. That is really, really, really cool. Yep. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's, I mean, I never dreamed that I would have so many kids. So it's been, it's been a, an adventure. Yeah. You learn so much with, with each of them and seeing these, these little people grow up and then to have like, to have a 20 year old or have, you know, someone in their older teens, it's like, it gives you that window into the world. Then when you have the four-year-old and the six-year-old, yes. you know, it's, it's kind of cool to yes. see them taking place simultaneously. Yes. And to see the bonds formed between the older ones and the younger ones. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's so heartwarming. I don't know maybe watching them, the older ones start caring about something in their world that they weren't previously like a, like a, like a pet or something like that. See them be like the nurturing, um, type of kid that maybe they weren't before. It's just, um, yeah, it's been lovely. How have you, you know, how open and honest with them are you about what you've been through and what you've achieved? You know, obviously speaking to a 20 year old is different than speaking with a four year old, but there probably have been a, a different variety of conversations, you know, depending on their mm -hmm. age and, you know, who's ready for what. And yeah, gosh, you ask great questions. Thank oh, you thanks. for these. Um, the older four uh, obviously know my entire story and lived it and survived it and so you know we've gone through all of that stuff me making the amends to them and me talking to them about I'm considering writing this book I'm gonna do my very best to protect your privacy and your anonymity to an extent but how do you feel about this like how do you and they were amazing in giving me full permission to just tell my story. And they were like, mom, we believe that people need to hear this. And that just was so moving to me that, that they would be willing to have their, you know, private things told in a sense, um, in order to have, to be available to help other people that I just, I found that very, uh, inspirational. My yeah. younger ones, this is, this is kind of funny. My, uh, my younger ones are very like, mom, you're in the no alcohol club, right? And I said, yeah, the no alcohol club. And they'll see me leave for meetings um, at night or my sponsor will pick me up and we're going to celebrate someone's sobriety birthday or go do whatever. And they're like, mom, we just like the alcohol club so much. We like those people. And it's just a gift to be able to, you know, they, they, they're too young to kind of know what it all means, but they also notice when they are around, like, for example, friends, parents who drink and, and they're talking about wine, you know, and, and it's just interesting that, that they notice and that they want me to stay in the no alcohol club. Yeah. And basically, you know, by me going to meetings, the big deal with that, right, is that I just, I mean, this is my living amends, my ongoing amends to my family. And on the whole is that if I make myself a priority and if I put my mental and emotional and spiritual uh, well-being at the forefront, then I'm going to be able to be the best version of myself. And so that is how 
I'm going to be able to actively uh, apologize, if you will, and live out um, what I'm doing at home. And so they're very supportive, which is really nice. I'm sure they would prefer it if I was home a little bit more um, at night than sometimes I am, but they understand and they see the difference in me. Um, Cause I'll get grouchy and stuff. If I haven't been to a meeting in a while, I'll just kind of get a little bit like irritable. And, and so they kind of know that, oh, mom's, mom's got to go to a meeting and it just cracks me up. I'm like, well, at least, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, but they see that, that moms have needs. They see that right. mom has a way of caring for herself, you know, and for some moms that's, oh, mom needs to go to the gym. Otherwise she's grouchier. You know, it's, it is, um, whatever it is, whatever it is, you know? So it's cool that they see that you're a human with needs and you take care of those needs. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And they also know that like, I'm a person too. Right. And so they can't say things to me out of anger or they can't, you know, I, I'm as much of a person as anybody else in this family or somebody at school in a position of authority and, and they get that and they see that. Um, so, and it's kind of been interesting. I will, uh, with the older ones, I will share different things that I still struggle with, like feeling like I'm 14 sometimes inside of a 45 year old's body, you know, and just like, like women drama, like pieces of that that are appropriate to their situation. And it's just so funny because I'm like, gosh, is this like an overshare? And they're like this, they're like totally just like listening in going, you know, no, keep going. This is really interesting, you know, that an adult still feels the way that I feel sometimes, but it creates this kind of normalizing um, situation in our house where it's like, yeah, man, we all feel left out when we see that somebody, you know, had a party and we didn't get invited. I totally feel that. So it's okay to, I'm just trying to uh, create a space that it's okay to be human and like, let's connect through that because I believe that the opposite of addiction is connection and having those open, honest lines available to talk and share and just kind of journey this life together. That's the only thing I can hope for when I think about my kids getting older is that they will want to talk to me and that they will want to, you know, feel like they can be honest with me and, you know, something I feel like I didn't necessarily have with my parents, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and yeah, if, if the secret to that is being open with them the way that you want them to be open with you, it's, it's a two-way street. I think that's very cool. And I would say it's, it's amazing. And the price is, is kind of a difficult one, at least for me as a mom, which is if they need to walk their path and it involves some things that scare me, right. That I have to be willing to walk with them through whatever their process is. And of course, step in when I need to step in, you know, I'm not going to just be like, Hey, good luck. Peace. (laughs) But, um, just really to be able to have that spirit of like, Hey, you know what? My path was not great. Andrew had to endure my path. And, um, sometimes it just takes what it takes. 
And sometimes we need to get stuff out of our system or experiment or whatever. And to be able to not live in fear and be a reactive parent, but be more responsive um, and to choose wisely what that looks like and not just be, you know, you're not leaving the house and going into some hysterical lockdown mode, you know, fit. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a, it's always a challenge, you know, these different things that keep coming up. Well, I don't want to keep you much longer, but I did want to make sure to touch on um, some more things um, regarding your husband. And you talk about a couple things that he did right. Staying, letting you yes. fail. Um, what are some other yes. things that he did right that you think could be helpful for people listening to this? One thing that for me was very helpful was that he doesn't drink. He occasionally would have a cocktail, but he cut all of that out in solidarity. And that was really helpful for me, although that is not always the case. Um, he, he just really was genuinely and organically supportive. And uh, that, was, that was huge for me. I just didn't wanna feel like, oh, this constant screw up. And so I was thankful for that. How did he have that kind of strength and knowledge to do those sorts of things? Was he seeking out help for himself or, cause I mean, I just imagine those things being really, really difficult to just have faith and, and walk forward and do. I know. And, um, I, as I mentioned earlier at the start of this, I don't think I would have been able to do it. He really believes in us as a couple to the point where he was willing to just stick it out and just see if it was going to work. And he really just, he's got this amazing kind of spiritual faith going on. And I think that that really grounded him. And I think that he really believed in the family unit and uh, just was trying to help tread water until we could see if I was gonna be able to float and carry weight again. Wow. Well, he seems like a great guy. I'm glad he's in your life. Thank you. Me too. Tell people again, the name of the book and where they can get it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, it's eternally expecting by Amy Liz Harrison. And the subtitle is a mom of eight gets sober and gives birth to a whole new life, her own. And it can be found on my website, which is amylizharrison.com or through Amazon and those are linked on the site too. But I want to say, Denise, thank you. This has just been an honor to be on your podcast. My thanks once again to Amy Liz Harrison for sharing her story with all of us today. If you listened to the last episode, you remember my guest Stacy was about to host an event in honor of her mom with her group Tina Kindness Co. And you remember it was going to be at the River Bandits game and she was going to take all of these donated gift baskets and she was just going to be randomly handing them out at the baseball game and, um, you know, surprising people with these random gifts and random acts of kindness. And so I wanted to do a little something and um, I put together a little a little basket that had um, two two little baby gifts in it. And I asked her if she would find a pregnant mom or a very new mom who had come to the game and just surprise her with this little gift. And um, so she sent me a message Stacy did today um, telling me how it went. 
She writes, so just filling you in, I gave your gift to my maternal grandma to hand out to a newer expecting mom. And I think she loved doing it just as much as the recipient. My grandma was in tears. We found a new mom with her baby there and she was very happy and excited. So thanks again for doing that. And I told her, thanks so much for telling me. I'm thrilled that you found someone and that you were able to make somebody's night. So my random act of kindness feels really, really good. And um, I thought that was so cool that Stacy um, came and picked up the gift uh, that I that I put together and that she was able to make the delivery. And I don't know, kind of make us a, a special moment for everybody there at the game. So congratulations to Stacy on a very successful event. And um, I know your mom was watching and looking down at you with such, such great pride. So thank you all for listening to this episode of On a Mother Level. You can find us on Instagram at On a Mother Level. Connect with me over there, and I will see you next week. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.